she felt about honey the way Philemon felt about bacon. Slip, 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 gobble, gobble, munch, crunch, burp. You don't waste food. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. And, you know, we always hope that the stories that you hear on the program spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people you love. Some of the best places for sharing those stories are in front of a cozy fire, at the foot of a child's bed at bedtime, and around the dinner table. But it's not just storytelling that can happen around the dinner table, and that's what we're focusing on today. Not only is the dinner table the perfect place to swap stories, but it's also where some of the best stories are made as we sit down to meals together. And so we're going to fill this hour with stories all about food. You're going to hear about unexpected dinner guests from Barbara McBride-Smith. You'll hear about an unwelcome dinner guest from Bobby Norfolk. You'll even hear a discussion about a children's book focused on a most welcome food, fry bread. And our first course in today's hour-long audio meal is a personal story from the Dean of Storytelling, Donald Davis, the great North Carolina storyteller, sharing stories of his childhood all over the country and all over the world in ways that help people feel like children again themselves and help them access memories of their own. He's got stories about running away from his doctor to avoid getting a typhoid shot, stories about suffering the wrath of his mother after purportedly getting a bad haircut, the great lengths he goes to to secure a room of his own. These are stories we can all relate to to some degree or another, but perhaps more than any of those, you'll relate to young Don. Donald's methods of avoiding vegetables. From a collection of stories called Mama Learns to Drive, here's Donald Davis with peas and carrots on the apple seed. Peas and Carrots. When I was born, we lived in a small frame house that had three bedrooms a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, and a bathroom, but no heat. There was only one room in the house that was ever warm in the wintertime. That was the kitchen. In the kitchen, my mother had a large wood stove. It would be some years before she got an electric stove. She would build a fire in the wood stove for cooking and a fire to keep warm. We got in such a habit staying in the kitchen in the wintertime that the kitchen became the place we lived all year round. The kitchen was where we ate. There was a big square wooden table painted white. My daddy always sat on the end of the table that was far from the sink, far from the stove. I always sat on the back side of the table with my back to the wall so nobody could sneak up behind me. My brother Joe sat on the outside. He was not scared anybody was going to sneak up behind him. And my mother never sat down at all. Her place was at the head of the table, nearest the stove, nearest the sink, but she would stand between the end of the table. Do you need more food? Do you need anything else? Do you need something else to drink? And my daddy would say, sit down and eat, Lucille. I already ate. I'll eat later. I remember her never sitting down. Now, my mother had one rule about food. You don't waste food. If the food is on your plate, the food must 
disappear. That would not be a bad rule if you actually got to serve your own plate. But we never got to do that. No, we didn't know what was good for us. My mother would take the plate and go to the stove. Then she would put potatoes on it. Oh, you need this so you'll be big and strong. She'd put green beans on it. Oh, you need this so you'll have plenty of energy and your hair will shine. Then she would put meat on it. Oh, you need some of this so you'll be able to run fast when you go to school. She would bring back a big plate of food and we would have to look at it until it was all gone. One day, I remember my little brother Joe looking at my daddy and saying, Is there anything you can do with food except eat it? My dad had laughed, and then he had said, Well, maybe so, but then you couldn't call it food. The kitchen table was also where we played. My brother Joe and I would spread a big blanket over the table, let it hang down on the sides, and then we could crawl under the table, and it was a cave. We would put a big blanket over the table, let it hang down on the sides. We would crawl under the table. It was a log cabin. We would put a big blanket over the table, let it hang down on the sides. We would crawl under the table. It was a teepee. We would put a big blanket over the... We were so dumb, that's the only thing we could ever think of to do. One day, my brother and I were playing under the table. We started wrestling around, and we got to kicking around, and all of a sudden, one of us kicked, and we broke one of the legs right out from under the corner of the table. I thought, oh my goodness, we're in trouble now. So I ran to find my mother as fast as I could so I could tell her that my little brother just broke the table. We had no idea who really did it. But we were not in trouble. My mother was thrilled. She said, oh boy, at last we can get a new table. I thought, my goodness, why didn't you tell us you wanted a new table? We could have broken this thing anytime you wanted us to. Well, we took the old table, put it on the back porch. It was eventually patched up and used on the back porch. Then we headed to the furniture store where my daddy said to my mama, Now, Lucille, you pick out any table you would like. My mother looked and looked, and finally she picked what the man at the store called a dinette set. The top of the table looked like gray plastic marble. The corners of the table were not square. No, the corners were rounded, and the sides even dipped in a little bit from the corners. There was a wide, shiny metal band that had grooves in it. The band ran all the way around the very edge of the table. And the table legs looked like they were made of silver pipes. There were two pipe legs on each corner. They started out of sight, flat against the bottom of the table. And as they curved down on the corners, the two met and ended up on the floor with little feet on the bottom. 
There were four chairs that matched the table. Covered in gray plastic, but the chairs had big round pink buttons in the middle of the seats and right in the center of the back. The chrome pipe on the seats rounded the back, passed the seats on the side, went down to the floor where they curved around and met. My brother Joe and I learned that we could sit in those chairs, get a good grip on the edges so that we wouldn't fly out, and bounce up and down, and we could bounce around all over the kitchen. One day, we were eating at the new table, and my mother was serving up my least favorite food, mixed canned peas and carrots. I hated peas and carrots. Those peas, they've been in the can so long, they're not even firm and round anymore. They've cooked down until they're soft and saggy, and they bulge out on the edges, and they're not nice and bright green. They're sort of faded down to the color of day-old monkey vomit. And the little cuby carrots, they're so ashamed of being called carrots, they sort of suck in on the sides, and their little corners stick out and turn dark. And the whole mess sits in greasy gray-green juice that runs all out of the peas and carrots and ruins your bread and soaks everything else on the plate. I hated peas and carrots. But my mother would always say, you have to eat your peas and carrots or you can't see in the dark. I said, I don't need to see in the dark. You won't even let me stay awake in the dark. I hate peas and carrots. You have to eat your peas and carrots because we don't waste food. I was seven years old, sitting there at the table, looking at the peas and carrots, and all of a sudden, my hands... Remember your hands when you're about seven years old. You're not really responsible for what your hands do when you're seven years old. You just get up in the morning, look at your hands and say, wonder where you're going today. And then you follow them around and see what they happen to get themselves into. Some people have hands like that their whole life. All of a sudden, my hands were playing up under the new table. When suddenly, one of my hands found the end of one of the big pipes that started the leg on the corner. My fingers discovered that the end of the pipe was open, and it was hollow inside. And all of a sudden, my hands realized You know, you could put something in that table leg. Why, you could put peas and carrots right in there. 
Next time my mother looked out the kitchen window, my hands came back to the top of the table. They picked up peas and carrots. They went back under the table, and the peas and carrots went into the table leg. I discovered that as long as your finger was, you could push the peas and carrots right on into the table leg, and they would keep going, and then you could load more peas and carrots right in behind them. I put every single one of the peas and carrots in the table leg. Not just that day, but every day we had peas and carrots the whole year that I was seven years old. I put peas and carrots in the table leg when I was eight years old. I put peas and carrots in the table leg when I was nine years old. When I was 10 years old, I had to swap sides of the table with my brother Joe because I had filled up all four of the pipes on my side of the table, and I had to start on his table legs. I put peas and carrots in the table leg when I was 11 years old. I would still be putting peas and carrots in the table leg, but when I was 12, We moved to a new house. My Uncle Spencer was helping my daddy load everything up. We were using Uncle Spencer's pickup truck to help move. One day they were loading the kitchen. They were trying to get everything in the kitchen to fit in the truck in one load. And all of a sudden, Uncle Spencer said to my daddy, he said, Joe, You know, if we would turn this table upside down and take the legs off, it would be a lot easier to get it to fit in the truck. I thought, no, 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 no. But I watched them as they picked up the table and started to turn it upside down. They got the table all the way upside down and nothing happened. But then they put it down on the floor with a bump. And all of a sudden, up inside the legs, a little sound started going. As years of dried up peas and carrots came running down the table legs out into little piles on the upside-down tabletop. My mother saw that, and she said, We don't waste food. She said to me, You go find a container and put this food in the container, and when we get to our new house, then we'll figure out what to do with it. So when we moved, in addition to our books and our toys and all our clothes, we had a big, wide-mouthed quart canning jar full of antique peas and carrots. When we moved, it was the beginning of the summer, just when school got out. Much later in the summer, late July or maybe even in August, they had at our church what they called Vacation Bible School for Children. 
my brother Joe and I went. We had little classes in each class. We would learn games. We would sing songs. We would study Bible stories. And we would do arts and crafts. In my little brother's class, they were making baskets by gluing popsicle sticks together. In one of the classes, they were doing pottery because the teacher had a little pottery wheel. In one of the classes, they were making weaving that would end up being wall hangings when the week was over and the children took them home. In my class, we were going to do something our teacher called making mosaic pictures. Our teacher told us that this was the way they had made pictures way before paint was even invented. We took flat white boards, the kind that you would actually paint on. We picked out pictures of animals. They all came from Bible stories, lions, and even, well, I picked the big rooster that crowed to show that St. Peter was telling a lie. I traced the rooster onto the whiteboard, and then when we finished tracing, the teacher told all of us, now boys and girls, we don't paint. We make mosaic pictures by gluing things on. Why, you could make a whole picture by gluing on buttons. You could glue on pieces of broken glass. Why, you could even glue on popcorn or even macaroni. She said, boys and girls, now when you go home, look around your house and see what you can find that you can use in your picture. I knew exactly what we had. You see, my mother was still keeping the peas and carrots on a shelf in the kitchen cabinet. Once in a while, she would come in and say, what are we going to have for supper tonight? She would take down the peas and carrots and say, oh, maybe we'll have these. Oh, no, maybe we'll save them a little bit more. So I knew they were still there. I also remembered the time when my little brother had said to my daddy, is there anything you can do with food except eat it? And I remember that my daddy had said, maybe so, but then you couldn't call it food. And as I got the peas and carrots down out of the cabinet, I knew what they were now called art supplies. The next morning, I put the jar of peas and carrots in the bag with my lunch that I was taking to Bible school. My mother said, what do you have in your bag today? And I said, Art supplies. When I got to Bible school, I had so many peas and carrots, I could share them generously with everyone and even swap to get things they had brought to use in my rooster picture. Oh, the rooster turned out beautifully. It was like a fighting game rooster with a big multicolored tail. The rooster's tail was striped green and orange outlined in macaroni. That Sunday after church, 
All the grown-ups were invited to come down and visit our classes to see what we had done, and then we could all take our work home. Here came my mother. She looked in my little brother's class. Oh, how sweet. Little baskets made of popsicle sticks. What a good thing to use them instead of throwing them away. We went in the next class. Oh, how nice. Pottery. I bet they learned a lot doing that. We went in the next class. Oh, look, weaving. Oh, these parents will be so proud when their children take things home. They could put them on the wall. And then we went in my class. My mother looked around, and all of a sudden she said, Oh! And I knew she had seen the rooster. Isn't it beautiful, I said. And my mother said, We don't waste food. But my daddy said, Lighten up, Lucille. This is not food. It's art. And my mother got so tickled, I didn't even get in trouble. Donald Davis with peas and carrots. What methods have you used to dispose of unwanted food in a clandestine fashion? The trash can? A napkin? The dog? What a pleasure to bring you that story. Donald Davis is a favorite of ours on the program, and you can hear many of his other stories by searching for Donald Davis on our website, byuradio.org. You can also find him at his website, ddavisstoryteller.com. Now, up next, a discussion about a food that's sure to make your mouth water. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Peas and Carrots from Donald Davis about a young Donald's efforts to trick his mother into thinking that he actually ate his vegetables. Nobody's ever tried that before, have they? Certainly not you, right? And up next, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the things we see on screen, through films and television, through the stories that we tell around the kitchen table or around the living room, through our interactions with great food or great music, and of course, in the great books that we find ourselves interacting with. And talking about all of the ways in which great stories get into our hearts and minds is something that we love to do here on The Appleseed. We love to do it with friends, which is why I'm so glad 
to have Gene Nelson behind the microphone with me here. Gene, it's great to have you. Thank you, Sam. Wonderful to be here. You know, in in some of your previous visits, we've talked a little bit about uh, award-winning books for young people. We've talked about Caldecott winners. We've talked about Newberry winners. And you've got an award-winning book for us today, too. I do. And it's an award that maybe a lot of people are are unaware of. It's called the Robert Seibert (laughs) Award. And it's uh, given annually by the American Library Association to the best informational book of the year. And usually those are a little bit thicker, yeah. just really packed full of information and charts and graphs. This year, a surprising choice to me, and I had some that I thought we were going to win, and it's a little book. It's a picture book, and picture books have won before, but this year it goes to fry bread. Ever had fry bread, Sam? Oh, listen, when I saw that book come out. My mouth started watering. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> Fry Bread, a Native American family story written by Kevin Noble Malliard, illustrated by Juana Martinez Neal, and she's a former Caldecott Honor winner mm-hmm. for illustrations. And it's a pretty simple story. You can see the illustrations, just beautiful, about children and family joining together to make fry bread. Yeah. And growing up in Arizona, um, we were not far from the Pima Reservation in Mesa area. And my mom was a cook, and she loved to make fry bread. (laughs) And boy, does this bring back memories. And it's a wonderful story about how fry bread brings us together as people, not just children, and how it creates art and how it creates taste and color, because sometimes a fry bread can be nice and golden. Yeah. And then if you want a little bit crispier, it's getting a little bit browner. And I like that crispy one. Give me that crispy flavor, (laughs) taste, and uh, texture. And it's a a beautiful book. And for those of us who may be uh, challenged, perhaps, in the kitchen. I mean, I'll raise my hand. I'm going to raise my hand right there. Everybody in the studio. (laughs) And at the very, very end, we actually have a wonderful recipe on how to put fry bread together. Oh, that's fantastic. And when I, I have to admit, when I first heard this book won, I'm going, oh, man, how come my, some of my other books didn't win? But as I spent time with this, it is really a great informational book. Yeah. And talk about the importance of this very simple food. Yeah. And yet, as people will argue that, no, my fry bread is authentic <laughs> and it's tastier than yours. Yeah. And everybody's fry bread is always the best when they make when it. When they make it. That's part of the magic of it. Really, oh, I think know, so, is, too. And, and and as illustrated so so beautifully in this book, uh, a, a, a lot of people gathered around a table together to make fry bread. And uh, I, I'll tell you, my, my, my introduction to fry bread, I, we always hope that the stories that we bring to the show here spark memories that right, we can exactly. share. You know? and, and I am just awash in, in a memory of uh, fourth grade. I mean, fourth grade. And uh, a bunch of the teachers in my elementary school, one of the teachers in my elementary school owned an apple orchard mm-hmm. near the school. And we all went out to his apple orchard one day for a mountain man rendezvous. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and there were exercises in making, can- dipping candles and, and 
uh, making rope and all kinds of. There were mountain men there showing off. All oh, kinds what a of, lucky guy you were! And and of course, one at one of the stations of the mountain man rendezvous, somebody was making fry bread. I had never had mm. it before, and I thought, oh, what a wonderful! Did you world put some this honey is. on that? Oh, golly! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the best. That is the best. Or have yeah. a, a big. My mom used to have a big pot of pinto beans boiling, oh, and we yeah. had the fry bread and chop up a little bacon, a little bit of onion in that. Oh, yeah. my, that was fine. So so many great savory ways to eat fry bread and so many great sweet ways to exactly. eat fry bread, too. Exactly, right? exactly. And one of the other things about this book, too, that I love is it's not only talking about fry bread and all those great uh, connections, but it also talks about the importance of all the different tribal units, mm. uh, Native American tribal units throughout the United States. And so it gives us a little bit of history, too. Well. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Providing a variety of different informations that I really didn't understand until I got the book in my hand. And I made a little rash judgment. Uh, here's this picture book. Kind of yeah. simple. It is simple. But it's also beautifully told with all kinds of different pieces of information. And by the time you close the book, not only do you have a great recipe for fry bread there you, go. That you can make with your family and even with your young children, right? Exactly. But also a lot of great information. You've really been enriched by this look into a lot of cultural aspects absolutely right? uh, through the window of this it's a, I think fry it's bread. going to we're going to see it in some years to come as a real important book with big capital quotations around important <laughs> I think it'll be seen as an important book because most of the time in uh, children's literature the Native American has been kind of left out yeah. we have very few books illustration by that part of our population and it's time that their stories be told and some wonderful award-winning ways absolutely what a pleasure to get a little bit acquainted with the book fry bread gene nelson thank you so much for joining us on the apple scene and for always bringing something tasty <laughs> you're very welcome sam thanks Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. And it was a pleasure to speak with Gene Nelson about the picture book, Fry Bread. And pleasure to talk about fry bread in general, if you want to know. If you're like me, your mouth is watering listening to that conversation. We've talked about unwanted food at the dinner table, but what about unwanted guests? Well, hopefully you're a little more hospitable than the character in this next story. Bobby Norfolk is a St. Louis storyteller and educator, three-time Emmy Award winner, and the recipient of an honorary doctorate degree from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And in this story, Anansi and Turtle go to dinner. Dr. Norfolk tells the story of that legendary trickster, Anansi, and the lengths he goes to not to share his food with Turtle. Here's Bobby Norfolk on The Appleseed. One evening, Anansi was sitting down to dinner when Turtle came to his door. Anansi knew the law of the jungle. If you have company and you have food, you must share the food with your company. Come in, Turtle. You're just in time for dinner, Anansi sighed. Turtle sat down. Thanks, Anansi. How are you? Turtle reached for a bowl of yams. I'm fine, answered Anansi. But, Turtle, your hands are very dirty. You know you can't sit down to dinner with dirty hands. Please go wash them before you eat. Turtle looked sadly at his hands. They had gotten very dirty on the long walk to Anansi's house. Oh, 
You're right, Anansi. I'm sorry. I'll be right back. Turtle slowly crawled off to wash his hands. As soon as Turtle was out of sight, Anansi ate as fast as he could. He ate peanut soup, rice and beans and meat. Slurp, 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 gobble, gobble, munch, crunch, burp. When Turtle got back, the bowls and plates were nearly empty. Anansi, you've been eating all of the food, Turtle said unhappily. Well, Turtle, you are very slow. I had to eat it before it got cold. But there's plenty left. Help yourself, said Anansi. Turtle reached for the bowl of rice. Wait, cried Anansi. Your hands are still dirty, Turtle. Turtle looked at his hands. Yes, they were dirty again, because he had crawled back to the table across Anansi's dirty, unswept floors. Oh, sorry, Anansi. I'll be right back. Turtle crept back to wash again. Then he searched through his shell and found some nice soft slippers to keep his hands and feet clean. Then he started back as fast as he could go. But as soon as he was gone, Anansi had stuffed the rest of the food into his mouth. Slurp, slurp, gobble, gobble, munch, crunch, burp. When Turtle saw the empty table, he cried, Anansi, you have eaten everything. Turtle, I could not wait any longer. The food was getting very cold. Maybe next time you come to dinner, you'll wash your hands and get to the table one time. Turtle nodded slowly and left with an empty tummy. As he walked, his hungry tummy growled and his hungry mind began to work. Hmm, Anansi tricked me. He got me to wash my hands twice while he gobbled up all the food. It's time to teach Anansi a very important lesson. Turtle reached home, ate his dinner, and began to plan. The next day, Anansi found an invitation in his mailbox to go to Turtle's house for dinner. All right, he cheered. Turtle's a great cook. Anansi put on his best jacket and went to the edge of the pond. He saw Turtle down at the bottom of the pond setting the table. I'm here, Turtle. I'm here for dinner, he called. Come on down, Anansi. Your dinner is almost ready answered Turtle. Anansi jumped into the water. Splash! But he didn't sink to the bottom. He just floated on the top of the water. Anansi kicked all eight legs and bounced as hard as he could, but he could not make himself sink. Hurry, Anansi! Dinner is getting cold, grinned Turtle as he watched Anansi splashing above him. Anansi climbed out and tried again and again and again. Splish, splash, splish, splash, splash. He could not sink to the bottom. Anansi thought, Aha, I know what to do. I have big pockets in this jacket. I'll put heavy rocks in the pockets and I'll drop right down to Turtle's house. Anansi gathered big rocks and filled his pockets. Then, ker-splash, he jumped into the pond. Glub, 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 he went down, down, down to the bottom of the pond where Turtle had set out a feast. 
This sure does look good, said Anansi as he reached for a bowl of food. Wait, Anansi, Turtle cried. You know you can't sit down to dinner with your jacket on. Please take off your jacket. But Turtle, if I take off my jacket, you must take it off if you want to eat, said Turtle. Anansi slowly took off his jacket and hung it on the back of his chair. He popped right back up to the top of the water. Anansi floated and watched his turtle eat every bite of the feast. He had plenty of time to think while he watched. Finally, he climbed out of the water and started back home. Turtle tricked me out of a meal just like I tricked him. I guess my mama was right. What goes around comes around. And that's the end of that. Anansi and Turtle Go to Dinner by Bobby Norfolk. Of course, you'd never act the way Anansi did in that story, right? It's our hope that not only are you willing to share your food with others, but that you're also willing to share your stories with them. And throughout the episode, we've been sharing stories about what happens at the dinner table, making for stories that you can then share at the dinner table, right? And we've got one more dinner table story to share with you just after a quick break. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard an Anansi story, a story about the West African spider trickster told for you by the great storyteller Bobby Norfolk. And uh, today on the show, we've been sharing stories about food and the dinner table. You heard a conversation with Gene Nelson about the picture book Fry Bread that likely set your mouth to watering, if you're anything like me. You heard a story from Donald Davis about what not to do with your vegetables. And up next, we thought we'd bring you a story about the right way to treat your dinner guests, even if they're unexpected. For more than 40 years, Barbara McBride Smith has worked as a teacher, a school library media specialist, a theological seminary instructor, a writer, a traveling storyteller. She's been a headliner 14 times at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and has frequently served as a teller in residence at the Timpanoga Storytelling Institute and the International Storytelling Center. In this story, Barbara tells the story of two humble farmers who are visited by a couple of mysterious late-night visitors. Now, if your mouth wasn't watering at the thought of fry bread, it will be when you hear this story featuring bacon seasoned with a little good karma. Here's Barbara McBride-Smith on The Appleseed. I'm going to close with one little story now. It's one of my favorite myths. It's one that's not very well known. Um... I discovered it and then decided to retell it. And I gave it to my husband as a gift for our 25th wedding anniversary. And this coming week, it would have been our 53rd wedding anniversary had he made it that long. Bacon. Mm-hmm. Bacon. Philemon loved bacon. Every morning he would wake up with his old bones 
aching, and he would say, Bacon. If he could just manage to get his weary old body up out of that bed and go out to the garden and find a a cabbage head big enough to pick, if he could go to the nest of Agatha the goose and find a few fresh eggs in her nest, then he would have almost enough. He would be close to trading those at the market for a brand new slab of bacon. Philemon had only one tiny morsel of bacon left now, and he vowed that he would not eat that last piece of bacon until he had a brand new slab of bacon firmly in his grasp, because being entirely without bacon produced in Philemon a sense of despair. And so he got up out of that bed almost gingerly, and he went about his chores doing what needed to be done that day. That night, he laid himself down on his bed next to his wife, Bossus. They exchanged another day's happening, and they drifted off to sleep. They had only been asleep for a short time when suddenly they were awakened by the honking of Agatha the goose. And then there was a knocking on their front door. Now, who could be calling at this hour of the night? No one should be out in the dark this late. Well, the old couple got up out of their bed. They made their way to the front door. They opened it, and there stood two strangers, handsome but roughly dressed. One of them was bearded. The other one was younger. And the two strangers said that they were passing through that village. They had been looking for a place to stay the night, for a warm bed, maybe a bit of food. But no one had taken them in. Well, guests were always welcome at the home of Bossus and Philemon, no matter how late it was. And so they invited them in. They gave them a place to sit at their table. And then Philemon hurried into the kitchen and he found that large head of cabbage he had picked that day in the garden. He put it in some boiling water. And then Bossus began to clean the last of their radishes and berries and to prepare them for the table. And then Philemon took that last morsel of bacon he had and he put it into the pot to make a tasty soup. That was when Bossus looked up to the top shelf of the cupboard and she saw there the jar of honey. She felt about honey the way Philemon felt about bacon. But she and Philemon were getting too old and too weak to run from the bears and the bees who loved that honey as much as they did. So they had only about two tablespoons full left in the bottom of the jar. It was precious to her. But she took the jar from the top shelf and she placed it on the table. Well, when the soup was done and they sat down to eat, Philemon picked up the serving spoon. His plan was that he would cut that little morsel of bacon in half and divide it between the two guests. 
But before he could do that, the older of the guests, the bearded one, stuck his fork down into the pot of soup. He stirred it around, and he stabbed the piece of bacon. He held it up. It was bigger than Philemon remembered it being. And then that bearded guest stuffed that piece of bacon into his mouth. He chewed and he swallowed. Well, Philemon was mortified. What could he offer the other guest, the younger one? But the younger fellow stuck his fork into the soup and he stirred it around and he too came up with a morsel of bacon. And it was bigger than the first one had been. And he stuffed it into his mouth and he swallowed it. And then that younger guest reached out and he picked up the jar with a little bit of honey in it. He tipped it up over his plate and he poured out all of the honey onto his plate, every single drop. Well, Bossa's turned scarlet. She was perspiring. What could she do now? What could she offer to the other guest? There was no more honey left. But she looked as that younger guest set the honey back down on the table and the jar began to fill itself. It filled itself with honey all the way to the brim. And that was when the old couple knew. And they fell down to their knees on the floor. And they said, forgive us. Forgive us, sirs. We we did not know. But now we understand that that you are God's. We, we, we are sorry for this humble meal. We gave the best we had. Oh, did you? Did you? Said the older of the two gods, who, of course, you know by now is Zeus. He said, you gave the best you had? And what about your goose? Our goose? said Philemon, the goose that provides us with eggs to trade for bacon at the market, not the goose. And the younger god, who was Hermes, said, the goose, call her. Very well, said Bossus. And so they called for Agatha to come. And as Agatha came honking toward the door, Zeus began to laugh. He said, Never mind. We don't want to cook your goose. <laughs> and then the two gods explained to Bossus and Philemon, We came to this village seeking only a bit of food, a place of shelter, and everyone in this village turned us away except for you. And now you shall be rewarded. Come with us. And the two gods took the old couple up to the top of a hill where they could look down in the valley below and they could see their village. And as they watched, a great flood descended upon that valley and destroyed everyone in the valley. It destroyed every home except for the home of Bossus and Philemon. And the old couple wept for their neighbors. And then the two gods said, Now, your home, it will become a temple. And as Bossus and Philemon watched, the mud bricks of their little hut turned to marble. 
and the roof transformed into gold. And the two gods said, Now, you may wish for anything, and it will be yours. And the old couple had to think about that. They had been married for many, many years. They had shared their love and everything they had for all that time. And they knew they did not wish to live without one another. And so they said to the two gods, We understand we could wish for anything. We could have wealth unknown, honey that flows, bacon without end. But this is what we wish. When our time comes to die, allow us to die in the very same moment. And it was so. The old couple, Bassus and Philemon, they lived on a good many more years. They enjoyed their bacon every day. They managed to run from the bees and the bears with the honey as best they could. And when their time came to die, the old couple joined hands. And they say that today in that valley where the old couple lived, there's a large oak tree and a smaller linden tree, and their branches are intertwined, and they grow from the same trunk. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels unaware. Hebrews 13.2 Good night. Barbara McBride Smith on the Apple Seed. It's been such a pleasure to bring you these tales. And, you know, all of these tales about food have a kitchen memory spinning around in my head, a memory of Oreo cookies. How about we wrap up with an entry in the Radio Family Journal? The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Apple Seed. My grandpa Payne, my dad's dad, was pretty free with treats. He always had a bag of lemon drops in the glove compartment of his car. We were as free to as many as we wanted. He brought home a 10-pound bar of milk chocolate once, and any time we asked, he'd take a kitchen knife and whack off a hunk of chocolate, send us happily off with it. There was always a jar of ribbon candy on top of the big cabinet television in the living room, and it was always full. That was my grandpa. My grandma was a little different. 
She always had a well-stocked treat cabinet, but it wasn't just an indiscriminate feed whenever we wanted it. We'd get a cookie every now and then after a meal or when we'd finished helping grandma with a chore or after we'd read a book. You know how it goes. Treats were rewards, rationed out little by little. That was grandma. We visited grandma and grandpa only a few times a year. They lived far away from us, and sometimes in the summer and sometimes at Christmas we'd make the drive to El Monte, California, where my dad grew up, and we'd stay for a week or so. And I remember one day, during a summer visit, the rest of the family had gone off to, oh, I don't know where, and left me alone at the house with my grandma, and I was, oh, let's say six years old. And I was sitting at the kitchen table, drawing with crayons or something. And my grandma was, oh, I don't know where. She wasn't in the kitchen. And in the silence of the kitchen, I thought of the treat cabinet. And it was a pretty persistent thought. And soon, I was going over there to the treat cabinet. And not long after that, I'd pulled a full package of Oreo cookies out of that cabinet. And I opened the package and took a cookie out. Just one, just one cookie. And I put the package back, and I took the cookie back to the table, and, oh, man, that cookie was just what the doctor ordered. I'd have one more, right? Okay, just one more. So I went back to the cabinet for another cookie, and two trips to the cabinet later, I thought, wouldn't it just be easier if I brought the package of cookies to the table? It had saved me some trips, right? And then the package of Oreo cookies was on the table next to me, open. And it was inevitable, right? You saw it coming a mile away. Indiscriminate, unbridled cookie consumption. Consumption, but not much crunching and not many crumbs because, and maybe you know someone like this too. I wasn't interested in the cookie parts. I was only interested in the cream filling parts. So, cookie by cookie, I'm downing the cream-filling centers of these Oreos, and I'm stacking the cookie parts in little towers next to me. And a little city of Oreo cookie towers grew up around my cream-filling eating project. When I started, this family-sized package of Oreo cookies had been completely full, brand new, unopened. I had broken the seal. And now... I was licking the cream filling from the very last Oreo in the package. I had eaten them all. And I was ready to place the last cookie on the last cookie tower. And at that moment, into the kitchen, walked my grandma. I had forgotten she was in the house. Heck, I think it's safe to say that in my cookie binge, I had forgotten she existed. But now, here she was the treat rationer. And there I was, the wreckage of an entire package of Oreo cookies littering the table around me. There was no escape. There wasn't time to reverse the damage, no chance to turn back the clock or replace the cookies with a new package. There was only time for a little six-year-old spin, and I had to think fast. The inevitable question came from my startled grandmother. Uh, what's going on in here? And in a moment, I threw the only Hail Mary pass I could think of. Well, Grandma, I thought you might like some cookies after whatever work you've been doing in the other room. Thought I might like some cookies? My grandma said it over the rims of her glasses. Uh, yeah, I said. But 
I didn't think you liked the cream filling, so I did you the favor of eating the cream filling. Here I gestured with a flourish to the stacks of cookie discs on the table. And, as you can see, I saved the best parts for you. You're welcome. But it didn't work exactly as I hoped. She didn't believe me, but she did begin to laugh. In fact, she was still laughing when my mom and dad got back to the house. So, I guess that in the end, everything was just fine. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And also, of course, stories from Barbara McBride Smith and Donald Davis from Bobby Norfolk and a conversation with Gene Nelson about that picture book, Fry Bread, one to look up for sure. Our thanks to you for joining us every time that you join us here on the Appleseed. Bring these stories into your home and into your heart. You can find us online at byuradio.org or Google the Appleseed podcast for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. These full hour-long episodes of the show packed with stories for you and your family and also mini-episodes, Appleseed extras, we call them, just a few minutes long for when you just have a few minutes and you want to fill that few minutes with a great story. The producer of the Appleseed is Jeff Simpson. He also wrote this hour today. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. I'm Sam Payne. Join us again, won't you? Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.